Good morning again. As Mark read the passage, you know what we will be covering today in Luke chapter 7. It's a, a passage that I'm fairly sure that we all should meditate on and think on for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I'm going to try to do it all in one Sunday, uh, mainly because it fits together in one passage and in, in one unit of thought. I try to preach paragraph and um, concept so that you can get the big picture. Um, sometimes, like in this passage, so much to cover that I'm afraid that I might not be able to, but I'm going to do my best. By God's grace, we will. Uh, just a special passage. Uh, it talks a lot about, and it's an illustration of, of what we've been looking at in Luke. It's an amazing passage that exposes the heart of mankind and also shows the glory of our Savior. We're going to see that outward kindness and smiles don't always mean genuine love. We're going to see that the forgiven respond to Christ in a different way than those who are self-righteous. Today we're going to see the contrast between Dead religion and living believers. The forgiven versus the proud. Jesus, last time we saw, rebuked the self-righteous ones for their rejection of him and John the Baptist. He basically said, in effect, look, you accuse John for being too strict and call him a demon, or possessed by a demon, and me, you say, I'm a friend of sinners and I'm too lax. You just don't get it. And then he concluded with God's wise ways are vindicated or shown to be right by the results demonstrated in his children. Those who really get who I am and what John's message was about demonstrate a changed life and show or demonstrate that God is wise and what is true is shown to be just that, truth. Now today, we're going to see a real live illustration of this concept. It's going to illustrate, the, the events literally illustrate the rejection of the self-righteous and the wisdom of God revealed in the children of, children of God. So you're going to see both of these illustrated perfectly. That's what this passage is all about. It's an example of dead religion that rejects the Savior and living believers who worship the Savior. The setting for the events is a cultural difference than today. The practice of inviting dignitaries to dine with you was a very common one in the, in the towns. If somebody came into your town and you had any money at all, you would invite them into your house. The well-off were expected to have the rich people come in for a meal and, and spend time with them, to share knowledge with each other, and to kind of rub shoulders with the rich and powerful and famous people. And what they would do is, is they would have them in and they would have their house open. So anybody in the town could come into the house and see the dignitaries that were hanging out with the rich people, the ones that had everything. 
it would very be, much be like, you know, this uh, in the last couple of weeks, the White House had the Chinese guy come to the, you know, the Chinese leader came and they threw this great big party, right? It's very much like that. It's that concept. But it's in every little town. So if somebody came into the town, open house, come on in, look who we have. Look at me. I'm having this dignitary come to my house. That's what this Pharisee was all about. The cultural etiquette was this, that when you invited this person in, you would have their feet washed. You would kiss them upon their approval. You'd put your left hand on their shoulder and kiss them in a holy kiss to show that you were thankful that they were there and would show great respect to them. You'd put oil on their head to show that you were honoring them as a guest. Other cultural things were everybody, like I said, would come to see. The house was an open house. So the culture in that town and everybody in that town knew who was holding the party and knew who was there and all would come out to see. That's what the setting for Luke chapter 7 is in Luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50. There's three main characters that we have in our passage here. We have the Lord Jesus himself, the broken woman, and the self-righteous Pharisee. As we walk down through this, it's very important for you to know um, that this is not a passage that's paralleled in the other um, accounts. Some might, some get this mixed up with the passage of Mary anointing Jesus' feet the week before his death. This is a different occasion. This is a special occasion. Now, it's even suggested that by some that this would be a, a common thing when Jesus came into a town, that this wouldn't have been just a one-time deal. This would be very, very common for the dignitaries or the Pharisee, a high influential Pharisee, to invite Jesus into their home. And this one's different than that one with Mary, like I said. As we walk down through this passage, I want to examine each of these characters, the Lord Jesus, the broken woman, and the self-righteous Pharisee. It's important for us to ask some questions as we go through this. And in order for this passage to work and to be applied to our own hearts, we need to ask the Spirit of God to answer these questions. Each of us need to answer this question. Which character are you most like? you like the Pharisee or are you like the broken woman? Do you even demonstrate some of the characteristics of Jesus himself? Which character are you most like? And second, do you know the Lord Jesus like the woman or the Pharisee? Do you understand who he is? And do you get how amazing Christ is like the Pharisee or like the broken woman? Which one are you most like? And who do you know, or how do you know Jesus? Do you know him intimately and fully aware of his forgiving, forgiveness and his grace? Or do you self-righteously think yourself a pretty good person? Today we're going to see the forgiven sinner knows and loves the Lord Jesus. The forgiven sinner knows and loves the Lord Jesus, while the self-righteous Pharisee questions and rejects the Lord Jesus. 
I want to challenge you as you go along that you don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I've heard this passage before. No problem, I can check out. (laughs) This passage is important for all of us. So let's just walk right down the passage. First, the Lord visits the Pharisee. That's found in verses in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Here we're introduced to the Pharisee named Simon, as verse 40 says. We're not given the motives for why Simon invited Jesus into his house. But we can see from the passage Simon was not doing it with the best motives. Let me tell you why we can see that. It's based on the fact that he did not treat Jesus with the utmost respect. In verses 44 to 46, there was no water for his feet. His feet were not washed. There was no kiss from the man. And there was no oil for his head. Jesus rebukes him later for this. So the motives for Simon were (laughs) half-hearted. Come, come, come. Maybe along the the idea of, look at me, I'm hosting Jesus. Whether it was an effort to earn merit by hosting a guest of the city, or whether it was trying to trap him, we're not told. One thing is for sure, though. Simon was a typical Pharisee that was quick to pass judgment on people. What is staggering is the Lord's condescension. What I mean is laying aside his glory to effect to step into Simon's house. He knew Simon's heart. He knew what he was about. He identifies it in verses 44 to 46. And yet, whose house did he go to? Simon's. He still went to the one that didn't love him much. (laughs) He still went there. The God-man entered the house of the one that did not seek to exalt Jesus, but sought to exalt himself. Jesus even reclined at his table. This is such an act of mercy, uh, such an act of grace to just approach the man. You know, it reminds me very much of God's common grace to all those that don't believe in him and reject him. Despite all of their rejection, God is still gracious to even those who reject him. The sovereign Lord continues to give breath and food and places to live for those that don't submit to him. He is gracious even to the evil. Though he would perfect, it'd be perfectly just to judge them and immediately send us all out from himself, he doesn't. He's gracious and he's kind and he seeks to show himself to us. We see it all the time, right? In his glory revealed in the heavens and all the things of creation. We all need to evaluate God's grace towards us in our lives and respond appropriately with honor and thankfulness. Simon doesn't do it. It's half-hearted worship. Come on in. Come on in probably to elevate himself instead of exalting the Savior. Second, notice, the sinner worships the Lord. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. 
And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. The scene changes dramatically here. As this woman enters the room, she is described as a woman in the city who was a sinner. The phrase probably refers either to a that she was a woman who was married to a well-known sinner or she was a lady of the night, which most of you understand what that means. Either way, she had a reputation, as Simon alludes to in verse 39. He says it to himself, if this man were a prophet, he, could have, he would know who and what sort of person it was that was touching him, that she is a sinner. So this woman was the worst of the worst in the city. Everybody knew it. She was the most wicked of them all, and everybody elevated themselves over her. She was obviously a sinner. This lady obviously has already met and knows Jesus. Now, let me tell you why. Because when she heard that he was there, she came. So she must have known already about him and what he was about. So she comes reacting to him being in that place. Somehow she had experienced Jesus. After she learned that Jesus was reclining at Simon's house, then she came to him. We can learn a lot from this lady in the passage. First, she had a reputation as a sinner. It's interesting, in the passage, her title, a sinner, or the idea of being a sinner, is mentioned four times. It's over and over and over and over. A sinner, a sinner, a sinner. Verse 37, 38. 47, 49. And she is compared to a person who is in great debt. Jesus compares her to that. But she did not let her past and her fear of man keep her from coming into a place where she was going to be judged. (laughs) She went into the rich guy's house, the Pharisee, the religious elite that would have no part of it, and she was not afraid. She walks in, even though she had the reputation, into a place that most people would not step forth in if they had that reputation. Why? Because of fear of man to be put down, but she went on in. When she learned where he was, nothing was going to stop her from seeing her Lord. Not even a fear of man. She brought what was valuable to her, to her master in verse 37. She brought an alabaster vial of perfume. This probably was very expensive. And most likely because she had given up her way of earning money, we know this by her reaction to the Savior, this was giving maybe the last of what she had. She became, she was coming with all that she had to see the Savior. She humbly approaches him in verse 38 and standing behind him at his feet weeping in total brokenness and total dedication to him. 
she comes in from behind. That she didn't rush up. You know, isn't that us? <laughs> she didn't rush up and introduce herself. <laughs> she didn't rush up and say, oh, I need to be a part of this conversation. She was forgiven and was right with the Lord, but yet she approaches very humbly and from behind and does not take great note of herself. She doesn't say, hey, slide over. I'm one of you. Let me get up here to the table and let me give me my two cents worth. She humbly approaches from behind and slides into the scene and begins to weep over the Savior's feet. Her weeping was obviously a revelation of her total brokenness and commitment to Christ. Again, these, te- these tears were probably an overflow of both. Her unworthiness, understanding that she was unworthy, but also maybe even tears of joy that she was seeing her master. I don't know, a mixed emotion probably at seeing the Savior. Here's a kind of a picture to kind of give you an idea of how how they would sit around the table. You wonder how she could walk up behind him. Well, if you see, they would lean over on one arm and eat with the other and have their feet back behind. And so therefore, she could walk up from behind and see his feet and still be behind him even though he's sitting at the table. So she walks in from behind, seeing his feet, seeing that they are what? (laughs) Dirty. Filthy, which they shouldn't have been, by the way, because what is this? This is the most exposed position. The Pharisee misses it, right? Showing no respect for the man, because what has Jesus got? He would have dirty feet for everybody to see. Filthy feet. I don't show any respect, is what the Pharisee says to this man. She walks up from behind and begins to wet his feet with her tears. She is sacrificially committed to her master. She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair. The scene is now staggering. It's totally contrary to the way the culture would think. Jesus had not had his feet washed yet, though he was reclining at the table. This was unthinkable for the Jewish culture, unless the host did not respect his guest. His feet were filthy and were exposed. And from behind him, this lady shows up. This wicked woman stands over his feet and begins to wet his feet with her tears. And then she does the unthinkable. She undoes her hair. Now, all of you ladies, almost all of you have your hair out. A couple of you have it up, but most of you have it out. That was not the thing in Jewish culture. You had your hair in the tight bun so nobody could see how long it was. Often you might even do some extra things to make it really high so you could see that you were really noticed. You had a lot of hair, but it was bound up tight. That was a woman's glory. Nobody saw her hair. Except in very intimate situations. You covered that. And here this lady comes in. And what does she do? It's shocking. She lets her hair down and starts wiping 
the feet of Jesus with her hair. This is total commitment. It's cultural craziness. It's socially unacceptable. It is love without limits. It's worship, all-out worship. She was so grateful, so committed to the Lord, she began to clean his filthy feet with her hair. And it wasn't just one wipe. The way it's worded, kept wiping with them. The Greek the word there implies a continual cleaning. It was almost like these feet have to be spotless. Even if my hair looks like a bird's nest. A woman's hair was her glory in Jewish culture. They kept it pinned. But she was worshiping her Lord. They'd never do anything like this to intentionally get it dirty, much less show it in public. But she valued the Lord over herself. Do you get that? She loved Christ more than her own self. She didn't care what she looked like. She wanted to worship her Lord. Wow, now that's a distinction, isn't it? This is biblical love, folks. That is evidenced by born-again believers. Sacrificially committed people. Finally, she takes out her valuable possession and pours it on the Savior's feet. Again, the feet in Jewish culture were the lowest, the lowest of the lowest part of the body. It was filthy. They didn't have socks and shoes like we have. Open-toed shoes were the only way to go. And there was dirt everywhere. And you stepped in everything. The feet were the worst. It was the dirtiest part of the body. What does she do? She pours her most valuable thing on the worst part of the body. Saying, in effect, your feet are more valuable than anything I own. Do you see the staggering difference here? The worst, the lowest part of my Lord is much more valuable than the most important things to me. My hair, my perfume. All that I have is yours. You are to be worshipped. The scene is shocking. Here's the God man in the house of a religious Pharisee. And the Lord is being worshipped by the most grievous of sinners. I guarantee everybody else that's sitting around the table is going, what? Seeing what is going on. We have a glimpse into the way a professing Christian 
must worship. This is who we should be. This is what we should be about. But let me tell you something, folks. I'm afraid that this is what the church in America often looks like. But it's not the woman crying. It's the Pharisee. That's where I'm afraid that the church is. I'm afraid that I'm too much like the Pharisee. And you are too. The self-righteous stand in hypocrisy and give lip service in our worship. Half-hearted worship. And then a real sinner comes in, in our minds, and finds forgiveness and totally wails and worships the Lord with all that they have. And we stand back and we go, what's wrong with that? Oh, you're showing emotion. Quit. Stop. You're just looking for attention. Crier. crazy we need to ask the question of ourselves what does our worship of the Lord look like are we like the Pharisee who half-heartedly asked the Savior to dine with him but his heart's not really in it and in fact he stands in judgment often as a means to justify himself before others We clean up the outside of the cup and we walk in and we sing. But our hearts aren't really in it. We're really self-focused and self-exalting. Or are we like this repentant sinner? Who is totally broken over her need and her gratitude of the Savior. Do we see who we are? Do we know how glorious he is? I'm ashamed to say it, but I think we become cold and we fall back into the same traps that we had before we were believers. And that is that we think we are good people. And so the value of the Savior becomes very small to us. And our worship is poor. It's weak. Look, I'm not saying we should try to drum up tears and emotions to somehow truly show that we're committed to the Lord. This would be fake. Not up here to cry and make cries come. Just... That would make us really more like the Pharisee. (laughs) But I do want to ask. Does our awareness of our sinfulness. And the glory of the Savior. Have any effect on our hearts. Are we broken. Over our sin. Are we aware. Of his thank. His grace to us. Does it move our cold hearts? Are we cold to the truth of who God is and who we are? That should be our prayer, shouldn't it? God, break my heart over my sin. 
God, show me how wicked I really am. God, show me how glorious you really are. So that we will respond appropriately to your glory. Are our times of worship moments of self-exaltation? Are they times where we can perform? Or are they times for us to humbly bow before our God and worship him? I've been in a couple chapel services lately where I wonder... Is God changing hearts or not? I don't want to be that way. Do you want to be that way? I don't want to be fake. Be real. I want God to just radically shake my heart. Gotta be, gotta quit being fake, right? Be warned, if you stop being fake and you actually share your heart, you will get it stepped on. But it's worth it. Because he is worthy. I think Jesus addresses the problem in his answer to the Pharisee's question in the upcoming verses. In verse 39, the Pharisee judges the Lord. There we go. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this woman doing that, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who or what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Again, this dramatic contrast in character is seen. Luke makes the point to identify the Pharisees that question Jesus, the one that questions him. He says, this specific Pharisee, the one who invited him in, it's the same one that said, supposedly was showing honor to Jesus. He says this statement. The way this is worded, it makes it seem like the Pharisee said to himself, but we don't know whether it was out loud or whether everybody at the table could hear him talk to himself, it's not really clear. Either way, Jesus knew what he was doing and what he said exactly. It reveals exactly, by the way, the heart of the Pharisee. I had something similar happen to me right before the service, <laughs> just a little bit before the service. I have a secret stash. Y'all don't know about it. I have some uh, French vanilla creamers here on secret stash everybody knows now you're gonna have to bring them out sandy i have a secret stash and i like to put it in my coffee and i had four of them and i laid them out on the table out there and the coffee wasn't ready i was like oh hope nobody steals my creamers I said it under my breath. I didn't even say it out loud. I just did it with my lips. Hope nobody steals my creamers. Just real 
And one of the deaf noticed, looked at my lips. <laughs> I'm not going to steal your creamers. <laughs> like, oh, man, yuck. No, 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 you can have them. I don't want to steal your creamers. <laughs> Didn't even say it out loud, and she read my lips. Then one of the hearing walked up and took two of them. <laughs> but it's this beautiful picture here. It reminds me. I wonder if he said it under his breath. Maybe he said it loud enough for other people to see. We don't know, but we know his heart was wrong. He was being what? Self-righteous. Self-righteous. Pharisee was. Jesus is going to expose him. <laughs> the Pharisee was misinterpreting true worship. He attributed true worship to a flaw in the one being worshipped. Did you see that? That's a staggering thought. True worship's happening. This woman's crying and wiping his feet. And what does he do? He says, he puts down the one being worshipped. Isn't that just like the Pharisees? Why? Because if somebody's laying there and getting all this praise and worshiping, showing such great worship to this man, what does that make the Pharisee do? It means that he is what? Not much. You're small, dude. This one that I'm crying over his feet, he's big. You're nothing. <laughs> You're absolutely nothing. You're hosting this party, but I'm weeping and messing with you. I'm putting uh, perfume on his feet. He's much more valuable than you that own this house. And what does a Pharisee do? Well, I'm going to fix that. In my heart, he should know better. He should know better. He's doing it to do what? To exalt himself. And put Jesus down because the only one that should be worshipped in my house is who? Me. That's what the Pharisees saying. See, there's self-righteousness revealed, isn't it? Exalting self. Even to put God himself down. What is this? No one can be better than him in his mind. He's the one that's hosting this party. This man must be unholy. He can't be a true prophet. If he is, he'd know who was touching him. The attitude arises out of a heart that saw legalistic standards as a means for self-justification. Touching a lady of the night or being touched by one of them made the person unclean. The person who allowed this touch, no matter how innocent, it was obvious, was wicked themselves. To him, this is the heart of evil, ladies and gentlemen. It seeks to justify ourselves by putting others down. All the time, not realizing that we are in debt to God. And unable to pay the amount that we owe. Over and over we see in these events the sinner 
shows how a heart should truly be changed and the self-righteous shows a heart bound up in self-promotion. Who is really being worshipped? Who is worshipping the right way? Who really gets who Jesus is and who doesn't? The most wicked woman gets it. The self-righteous one misses it. I'm concerned, ladies and gentlemen, we're all too often more like the Pharisee than the repentant sinner. We bring half-hearted affection and worship our master because we think way too highly of ourselves. And we condemn genuine worship because we seek to put others down to justify our own cold-heartedness. Do you get that? When was the last time the glory of God brought you to your knees? When was the last time you were broken over the glory of God? When was the last time you said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I confess it starts with me. Break me, God. I think way too highly of myself. And you do too. Can you tell it's an amazing passage, isn't it? Oh, may God show us our sinfulness. So we can then see the glory of our Savior. Notice how the Lord responds. The Lord exposes the Pharisee. Jesus starts with a statement meant to draw the prideful Pharisee in. He says, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Boy, this is, this is like, the way it's worded, it, it almost stands out at, like, he's challenging him. The Pharisee is all caught up in what? Pride and self-exaltation, right? I have something to say to you, Simon. The Pharisee does what? Okay, bring it on. Say it, teacher. Come on, say it. I can take your best shot is, in effect, what he's saying. Give it to me. I'm holy. Probably have all the answers you need. Probably. He could have told you that that lady over there is a sinner. You shouldn't let her touch your feet. Hopefully you ask me who she is so I can tell you. These are all the things that probably ran through his mind. Jesus reels him in. Okay, Jesus, give me your best shot. Jesus then gives him a short parable and a concluding question. <laughs> a money lender had two debts, two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? At first glance, we might think, 
one person was in a worse situation than the other. We might think by the parable that one person had it better off than the other person. I'm fairly sure Simon even probably thought the same thing. 50, 500. But, just to give you a little background, one denarii was the average salary for one day. So that 50 was in debt for 50 days. And usually one denarii was enough to just barely survive. So 50 denarii in debt was a huge amount. 500 was, whoa, horrible. But there's a key little phrase here. Notice, verse 42, when they were unable to repay, both of the people were in an impossible circumstance. Both of them owed more than they could pay back. Both of them were completely helpless and hopeless. The story gives a dramatic setting. This was an impossible situation for both debtors. And to make the story even more shocking, the moneylender graciously forgives the debts of both when they couldn't repay. The normal situation in the world and during that time would be for the person to be thrown in jail or to sell themselves into slavery until all the debt was paid off. So the story is a dramatic story of grace, unmerited favor to both people. God is showing unmerited favor. The debtor, the moneylender, is showing unmerited favor to both people. Isn't that what was happening in the room? Who was at the Pharisee's house? The God-man. Grace. And even the sinner. Grace. And Jesus concludes the mini-story with a question for Simon. So which of them will love him more? Next we see Simon correct, Simon's correct answer. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Now, at this point, this is the height. This is probably the height of Simon's pride right here. Why? Because the teacher just told him, you're right. What happens, moms, homeschooling moms, when you ask a question and the kid says, I know it, I know it, and they give you the right answer, and you go, that's correct. What happens inside of a child? I did it. Uh, ha, ha, yes, uh, I'm correct. Okay, I know. Uh, that's me, correct answer man. Who Simon is reeled all the way in. <laughs> He's taken the bait. Right? He's there. He's got it. Mm, this is good. Yep, I'm the most righteous person in this whole place. Smart, too. And Jesus takes out a bat. 
<laughs> and absolutely strikes him right across the head. Figuratively, I'm speaking. With his words. He just fillets the guy. Whoop! And he says... Turning to the woman, <laughs> you can see him. He's on his shoulder, looking back, looks back at the woman. And he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, the most common decency of respect and honor. But since the time she has come in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't even anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus reveals the contrasting characters by their deeds. The woman is broken. She washes Jesus' feet, and he acknowledges her worship as genuine. She gets it. Simon, you didn't do what is the most basic cultural etiquette. Simon, you didn't even give me a normal greeting. The woman has done the most humble thing of kissing my feet. My filthy feet you didn't wash. Simon, you did not do what most do when a guest comes into your house and anoints their head with oil. But this woman has given up costly perfume all over my feet. Ultimately, Jesus is showing that her response to him is because she knows Jesus correctly. She gets it. She knows who he is. And she worships him. She knows that Jesus is her hope, her way of deliverance. And she has been forgiven much. She loves much as a result. But Simon doesn't really get it, does he? I find it interesting. It's still ambiguous at the end there. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He doesn't say... But you, Simon, who is forgiven little, loves little. It's pretty vague out there still, huh? Simon doesn't go away from this occasion with real any, any confidence, does he? He doesn't go away. He leaves it pretty ambiguous out there. I wonder how Simon responded. Can't wait to find out in heaven. It doesn't tell us. Jesus says as much in the statement in verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Past tense, completed action, 
have been forgiven in the past because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. At first glance, this statement might be understood. This passage does not mean because she cried and washed his feet and showed love, therefore she earned forgiveness. That's not what it means. I find it interesting, though, that there is some difficulty in understanding the statement. The way he says it, he says it if you have a legalistic tendency in your heart, an idea that you are going to earn favor with God, you might be led astray. But if you truly get it, you understand that we don't love to earn forgiveness. We love because we are forgiven. Understand that. If you understand forgiveness, then you worship rightly. If you don't know that you're forgiven, then worship is of little importance to you. The fact is, she had been forgiven. And in this case, the ongoing result is love for one from one who has been forgiven. She continuously loves him. All of this is because she knew Jesus. She had been forgiven by him. And thus she loved him. Now Jesus reassures this repentant woman. The Lord encourages her. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Done in the past, done for you, you're right with God. Again, Jesus states, the greatest words a sinner could ever hear. Would you not agree? What are your favorite words, your favorite concepts? It's done. Your sin is forgiven. Anybody that knows the glory of God and the holiness of God realizes that we are sinful beings, wicked beyond all expectation, and to know that we are forgiven is probably the most encouraging words that anybody could ever hear. Would you not agree with that? And Jesus encourages her. When Jesus proclaims her forgiveness, he is confirming something, though. He's saying what? I'm going to die. Hmm. Now, did everybody completely fully understand it at the table? No. But it had to happen. In order for the sin to be paid for and for her to be forgiven, there had to be a death of an innocent one. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. So in effect, your sins have been forgiven. Says at the same time, I'm going to die for you. I will take the judgment you deserve for all of that sin. I'm taking it. You're not. Your sin is gone. A statement that only God could make, huh? Only God could make it. And in this case, the guarantee of this is based on the coming death of Jesus. Even the company that were around, the people at the table, they see what he's saying. 
company says what? Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? I think the crowd by this time is like, whoa, this is... Can you imagine they walked away from this scene? (laughs) Everybody walked away from this scene going, now that was interesting. (laughs) That's opposite of what I would have expected to see at the Pharisee's house. (laughs) Everything, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) I just saw the opposite of the way the world thinks right in that house. Unbelievable. Everything's backwards. I just saw a man rebuke the most righteous religious person in the whole city. And I just saw the most sinful woman in the whole place worship a man, a man, and then him say that you're forgiven. Wow. Whoa. I guarantee you everybody walked out of that place going, now this is the strangest thing I've ever seen in my whole entire life. Wisdom of God is absolutely craziness to the wisdom of the world. What an illustration, isn't it? Of the worst words that he had previously said. It's a perfect illustration. Do you see the sovereignty of God in this too? He makes these statements, and then, boom, perfect situation. It comes and lays itself out there. Well, here, look, let me show you. (laughs) And he says these marvelous words that we all hold to and confirms the sinner's salvation. And he said to the woman, your faith your trust in me, your commitment to me, your dependence on me has delivered you, has saved you. Go in peace. Wow. Mm. Is that not the greatest truth you could ever hear? (laughs) Fully aware of the holiness of God, fully aware of how wicked and wretched you really are to know that you are delivered, you are at peace with your maker. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know that truth, your worship will look like the sinner. If you seek to justify yourself, your worship will look like the Pharisee. Which one does your worship look like? Let's pray. Wow, Lord. Mm. What a passage. What a glimpse of your glory. What a glimpse of your grace and your kindness and your goodness to us, the wretched sinners. We say with John Newton, amazing grace, amazing grace. 
How could it be that you would save a wretch like me? God, you are glorious. You are great. God, please help us to know who we are and what you have done and who you are. We praise you and thank you and commit our day to you, our master. In Christ's name we pray.